You are listening to From the Midwest to the Middle East, the latest on U.S. tax, Israeli economy, and lots of in-between. Interviewing Israeli and international experts. Chicago, Chicago. Welcome to our podcast. I am Philip Stein, president of Philip Stein & Associates. Hi, I'm very excited today to have a guest, a guest from a firm that uh, we have had a podcast with in the past, so we're going to get some interesting updates. My guest today is Daniel Fink. Daniel joined Sweetwood Capital as a senior analyst after a successful analyst role at Rubini Global Economics in New York, which is an independent global macroeconomic strategy, strategy research firm. Prior to working at Rubini Global Economics, Daniel was active in the public sector as a Rosenthal Fellow at the U.S. Department of Defense, covering Central Asian energy issues, and as a research assistant at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks very much for having me. Um, I think just uh, my listeners will get to know you better after this call, but certainly the, the name Rubini, um, certainly in the... I don't know if you were working there when when the the economic downturn was, but he you couldn't you couldn't miss him in those days. He was on I think every talk show that uh, existed. So let's start with my first question. Yesterday uh, was actually the close. We're one quarter through two fifteen, believe it or not, and two fifteen seems to me, or and maybe my listeners, the lay layman out there that started with with a lot of volatility, uh, soaring dollar, weakening euro, oil prices 50% below last summer's prices, and a raise in U.S. interest rates, it seems imminent. What What is your outlook for 2015 or the, the next three quarters? Sure. Well, you know, as I said, I mean, we're, we are in exceptional time for uh, for financial markets. I mean, now, on the one hand, we have um, you know, global central banks, which are uh, at an, you know, an all-out assault uh, against uh, deflation, against uh, you know, modest growth. Um, you know, just to give you a sense, so far this year already, 23 central banks uh, have eased monetary policy. So most notably, we have a continuation of the uh, aggressive balance sheet expansion by the Bank of Japan. Um, and in January, there was the announcement of the massive uh, bond buying program from the European Central Bank. So we have you know, enormous uh, monetary, very aggressive monetary policy, uh, which has pushed yields down on, uh, you know, on, on all assets, but even on, on government bonds in Europe. Uh, where you basically have a, about a quarter of government bonds in Europe which are which are providing a negative yield. On the other hand, you know you have arguably one of the, the most influential central bank, which is moving in the opposite direction. That is the the U.S. Federal Reserve, you know, which is slowly getting ready to uh, to raise rates. So you know normally you have a dynamic in which central banks are moving you know in lockstep with each other, um, and the moves are fairly predictable. Whereas now, one of the reasons that I say that this is an exceptional time is you have central banks which are moving in, in divergent paths, um, you know, with most of the world moving to, with, a, with an easing bias, um, while the U.S. is, is moving towards, towards a tightening bias. And what we're seeing is all sorts of implications. Um, you know, principally, uh, major moves and heightened volatility in currency markets, which we've already seen, um, massive decline in the euro, uh, the of the of the U.S. dollar, 
And so I think, you know, above all, this dynamic of, of divergence, I think, is going to continue to, to assert itself this year um, with continued uh, large moves um, across financial assets, but, but principally in, in, in currency mm. markets. Okay, well... Uh... We're certainly experiencing this uh, on a daily basis for us who are observing or in these markets. What type of, in light of what you're saying, what type of asset allocation should one have these days in their portfolio? I mean, I I think that question, um, the answer to that question largely depends on what the uh, particular needs are of, uh, of a particular client. Um, and so one of the things that we do at Sweetwood is try to assess, you know, what are, what are those needs of each individual client? Um, you know, what is the, the risk tolerance of that particular client? And then based on that assessment, we can more accurately construct a portfolio which is in line with those needs. So that being said, um, you know, our, our views, uh, we do continue to, to express views on, on asset classes um, throughout all portfolios. So, you know, generally speaking, um, we continue to have a, uh, and this is a continuation from last year, but a, a constructive view on, on global equities. Um, this is especially, you know, relative to, uh, to global bonds, given how rich some of those valuations are. Um, we, uh, in the U.S., um, we continue to like uh, those sectors which are positively tied to the uh, acceleration in growth in the U.S. Um, and are leveraged to the decline in oil prices. So specifically, we like um, technology, um, which is positively uh, correlated, or those stocks which are positive, positively correlated to um, increases in, in U.S. GDP, um, strong balance sheets. Um, we also like those sectors um, which are tied to the U.S. consumer, um, who's able to, you know, to exploit the uh, the tailwinds associated with uh, with the lower oil prices. Um, you know, in Europe, we think that um, you know, again, the the lower oil price dynamic, um, the depreciation in the euro, uh, which has been a boon to a lot of uh, a lot of exporters. Um, has made uh, Europe uh, a more attractive uh, area to to deploy capital. So there, you know, we like um, equities, but specifically um, German equities, which are more tied again to the improvement in the U.S. Econ- to the uh, European economy, um, and are also more tied towards uh, towards exports. Um, so we think that you know the euro will continue probably to trade uh, to trade further down, um, and so you know that should continue to be to provide a boost to uh, to some of those corporates you know, who are already able to do well you know with the euro at around you know 135 140. So with the euro at you know 110 or 105 or even moving to parity, you know we can see you know further um, uh, improvements in, uh, in in these companies and, and their fundamentals. Um, you know, we also continue to like uh, to like Japan, um, albeit for different reasons. Because one of the interesting things that we've seen is that you know, Japanese equities have have continued to improve. Um, you know, among developed markets, they're the, they've been the second best uh, performing. Uh, equity market uh, for for the first quarter, um, and there uh, we've seen improvements because a lot of the uh, reforms that uh, that have been in place, encouraging companies to reward shareholders, um, to increase dividends, uh, share buybacks. So you know the the Nikkei is already up around 12% this year. Um, so again. All of that being said, in terms of a constructive view on equities, 
one of the things that we we also like to be sure of is that um, we're protecting those those gains um, amid these volatile moves in in the currency markets. So for Japan, for instance, uh, we like to get that exposure, but um, hedge that exposure against the yen, uh, you know, which which can be prone to to major moves and, and further depreciation. Um, and the same thing goes with uh, with the European market. And we are constructive on on European equities, but again, want to protect ourselves against uh, a further fall uh, in in the euro. Um, we still think that high yield offers uh, a compelling story. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, what yields are like in Europe, um, take uh, Germany, for instance. I mean, if you're buying a German bond anywhere from zero to seven-year maturity, uh, you're getting a negative yield. And on a 10-year bond, uh, let's say in uh, Portugal, um, you're getting a yield of about, uh, you know, 1.6%. Uh, so, again, we think on as opposed to moving into sovereign bonds in Europe, we think that you know, high yield is still compelling. You can get uh, yields of around 3 3.5% in Europe. Um, in the U.S., also um, a little bit more attractive with yields around 55 uh, or 6%. Um, so, again, we think um, you know, that, that you know, positive returns can still be, uh, can still be obtained from, uh, from the high-yield asset class, both in Europe and, uh, and U.S. Very interesting. Now, let me move a little to global politics. Uh, I think a week or two ago, uh, the turmoil in Yemen uh, rattled the price of oil. Um, what, do you, what are you looking at in terms of political economic developments that are going to have the most impact on investments in 215? Is it the Ukraine? Is it ISIS? Is it a slowdown in China? Might it be Greece leaving the Eurozone? I think it's, it's interesting if you think about um, how someone would have answered that question uh, in 2014, for instance. Um, and how many people, you know, in January 2014 um, had even heard of ISIS? Um, or we're talking about, uh, you know, a, uh, a Russian uh, assault into, into the Ukraine. So I think, you know, most of the geopolitical developments which you mentioned, um, whether it's, uh, you know, to turmoil in the, in the Middle East or the current status in, in Ukraine, um, I think a lot of that is already um, priced in to the market. And I think that as far as the geopolitical risk come, um, you know, it's probably more likely to be something that, um, you know, that, that we aren't uh, looking out for right now. Um, you know, I would be looking at, um, at areas um, in which, uh, you know, in which we haven't been, uh, in, that, that have not been um, in the headlines. So, for instance, when you talk about China, I mean, I think the, the Chinese slowdown is also, you know, well uh, baked into the market, you know, growth uh, being around, you know, 6%, uh, 6.5%. My one of my biggest concerns has to do with uh, on still on the on the currency uh, issue. Now, the question to me isn't so much you know is China going to slow down. I think the question is how is the country um, and and how is the 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 government going to manage that slowdown. So one principal risk that we see is what happens if the Chinese authorities decide to uh, materially depreciate their currency in order to uh, have their exporters become more competitive against the Japanese whose currency has declined or the Europeans whose currency declined. 
Now, if the Chinese depreciate their currency, what is that going to do to American exporters? What is that going to do to their profit margins? What's that going to do to their earnings? So I think um, on, the, on the currency side, um, and at least on the, on the macro risk, um, I think that to me is, is, one, of the, is one of the largest risks. Um, geopolitically, I think it's pretty interesting um, that uh, you know, the market has, has pretty significantly uh, discounted a fair, or rather has not discounted um, a fair amount of, uh, of the risk related to, to Iran. I mean, Yemen is, is not a major uh, oil exporter. I think they're maybe the, the 13th or 14th uh, you know, biggest exporter, but it has much more to do with you know, where they're located um, as a major choke point for, uh, for oil supplies. Um, I think um, the, you know, and then of course there's, there's the Fed, which, um, you know, we, we don't quite know how the market is going to react to uh, the beginning of, uh, of interest rate hikes. And I, you know, our view is that uh, the Fed is more likely to increase rates um, in September um, and is probably going to wait and see until uh, the macroeconomic data improves. And although they'll begin to hike, you know, potentially in September, it's probably going to be a very gradual process because of a lot of the issues that you mentioned. Um, so rather than, you know, hiking very aggressively, we think it's going to move probably, you know, pretty slowly um, and, you know, with a view of, you know, there, there are many um, fractures um, in the system, and uh, you know the Fed wants to be sure that it's not going to going to rattle um, or exacerbate any any of those fractures. So, you know, that's kind of how we how we see what the what the major risks are. Okay, that, that's really uh, insightful. Where can an investor put his money to, if he or she wants predicts or sees uh, black clouds of what we might call an economic storm? gold, the dollar, real estate, if they're fearful of the equity market? Sure. I mean, I think, I think all of the above. You know, there's, uh, you know, there's a saying that, uh, that in, you know, in times of, of crisis, all correlations move to one, uh, meaning that, you know, in periods of crisis, um, you know, selling begets selling, and it doesn't necessarily matter, you know, which asset class you're in. Um, everyone becomes somewhat of a, of a victim. Now, that being said, um, you know, much of this depends on, on the particular, you know, type of, of crisis. Um, but I think, you know, a, as you point out, I would say all of those asset classes seem like appropriate places to have some part of your capital. Um, you know, and, and the way that we're looking at, at portfolios and client portfolios is not only, um, you know, the financial asset portfolios, um, but also the assets that any client um, comes to the table with. So, you know, having that being said, a real estate, for instance, um, you know, that's something that you know, is already held in, in many portfolios just by virtue of a client, you know, owning property or, or owning a home. Mm -hmm. um, so we think that, you know, that is that that is already um, kind of uh, part, of, uh, the, the client already has that. Um, so we're, you know, what we're concerned about um, in terms of you know, the, the portfolio that we're constructing is, um, is liquidity. Um, you know, so in periods uh, of crisis, you know, what is, what is the prospect of being able, um, you know, to, to sell those assets and, you know, because in these periods, you know, where you have cash being king, um, you know, 
again, uh, there can be a small amount, um, you know, which is which is held in uh, in U.S. dollars, um, investment grade credit as well, um, you know, which at least in the last uh, crisis, um, relative to you know that you know 2008, um, relative to other financial assets, um, you know, was much more defensive. Um, gold can be can be tricky because um, in the period that we're in right now, in which you know gold traditionally is is held as a as a protection against inflation. Um, so one could say yes, want to be you know, want to have uh, asset you know real assets. Um, but what happens when the crisis is uh, being stimulated not by inflation but by deflation, and where you actually have a depreciation in the price of uh, of gold um, and an increase in the price of uh, of cash or currencies. Mm-hmm. So on that basis, you know, we think that uh, the U.S. dollar, um, you know, continues to be uh, a, a much more attractive store of value. Okay, let me shift to uh, a topic that was certainly popular. Uh, Two years ago, it seemed to be the place to make money, namely emerging markets. Uh, they seem to have fallen out of favor among investors. Do you see opportunities there? No, I think you know when we when we talk about uh, when we talk about this this asset class, um, it's very important to distinguish um, within the asset class. So, you know, maybe four, five, six years ago, we could talk about um, emerging markets as being this single asset class. Um, but when you actually dig a little bit deeper, you see that, you know, there are major differentiations within emerging markets. So just, for instance, 2014, you know, the way that we like to think about emerging markets is to differentiate between um, the reformers um, who have undertaken uh, significant political, economic, social reforms. Take India, for instance, um, Indonesia, uh, even China uh, as a candidate, uh, Mexico, versus those countries in which it's business as usual or in which there's been a rolling back of some of those reforms. Take Russia or Brazil. When you look at the returns that can be obtained from these different countries, you see major differences where you had uh, 30, 40% increases in uh, the equity markets in India. Um, Indonesia um, versus 30 or 40 percent declines in equity markets, Brazil and Russia. So to answer your question, they have fallen out of favor, and I think that's because they've become much more complex, um, and it requires um, a, a higher degree of differentiation and deciphering among these. So, you know, for this year, we think that, again, uh, those reformers um, will continue uh, to, to uh, produce uh, strong gains, again, India, um, Indonesia. But that being said, um, it's also important to consider how the beginning of normalization of, of interest rates in the U.S. is going to impact some of these countries. We think that that's one of the reasons that they have fallen out of favor. Um, so, you know, those countries which um, were able to take advantage of uh, issuing you know, large amounts of, of debt, um, uh, you know, they might be the ones who are going to be less attractive as the, as the Fed raises rates. So, again, there, there are opportunities, um, but it's important to, to differentiate between them. 
Um, so I would say, you know, for, for anyone who, who is interested in that, you know, take a look at the specifics that are going on in those countries um, before getting access to, you know, an emerging market uh, equity fund. Uh, it makes much more sense uh, to, to choose your country uh, more specifically. Okay, so let me go to uh, a, a different asset class. You did mention we did you did refer to gold before, and, and certainly currencies. But what about commodities? How how are you looking at commodities as a investment? Yeah, I think this kind of dovetails from the from the emerging market question because um, you know what we're seeing is that. Um, you know, again, the, the I mean, traditionally commodities were considered like gold to be an attractive asset class um, to guard against inflation and to provide portfolios with greater diversification. And those were the two principal reasons uh, to gain exposure to to commodities. But we, what we've seen are, are two changes. Um, firstly, what we're seeing is, an, is the absence of inflationary pressures. We're seeing the opposite. We're seeing you know strong deflationary pressures. Um, and what we're also seeing is that is the diversification that was perceived to be uh, a benefit of commodities has actually ha- has not been the case. You've seen a high degree of, of uh, correlation between commodities um, and other risky assets. So, um, you know, that's kind of on the on the portfolio construction side. Um, but then you also have to consider, you know, what what are the fundamentals, um, and you know, the prices of commodities peaked uh, in 2011, um, and what we're seeing is the hangover of an oversupplied market. Um, many of the major producers, uh, whether it was oil um, or iron ore or copper, um, what they did is they began to increase production um, when prices were at their peak and demand was at their peak. And when a lot of those supplies began to come back online was right around the time when demand started to uh, falter and you began to see uh, derating of uh, growth in China. So on a fundamental basis, um, we have a much less constructive view um, on commodities as an asset class. Um, However, um, that doesn't mean that we are not uh, looking for opportunities uh, within within commodities. But as opposed to investing in a commodity specifically, um, you know, which does not deliver cash flow, um, we think it's much more interesting to gain exposure to commodities through um, through the the producers themselves. Um, so investing in the equity of an oil producer, uh, which uh, provides uh, investors with a dividend, um, which provides greater visibility um, on uh, you know on operationally. Um, so again, if if we are you know, we, we do look for those opportunities, um, but perf- much rather uh, get that exposure through a producer, through a company, um, rather than, you know, the, the commodity itself. All right. I think in, for my last question, uh, something having to do with an observation in my practice that I've seen uh, gradually change over, over the last two decades, that it's, it's very rare uh, for me to see people investing in or being advised to invest in specific stocks. The the trend is more groups of stocks, call it a mutual fund, call it an ETF. Um, do you agree with this strategy? In other words, is it just not 
something that one does anymore as a, an individual investor to buy individual stocks, or is it still is there still some place for that in a person's we portfolio? That there needs to be some combination uh, between the two. Um, you know, at, at Sweetwood, our belief is that you know we're going to to leverage the knowledge that we have, um, and for those areas. Um, take the Israeli uh, equity market, um, in which we have less less expertise in. Um, you know, we'll leave that to to those experts. So, that being said, for instance, um, you know, if there are particular companies um, which provide whose business model you know, we understand well, um, uh, whose dynamics we understand. Um, you know, we're comfortable investing in, in a particular company. Um, one of the uh, benefits of that is we're able to take advantage of a particular story, whether it's a, uh, a company, a, a turnaround in a company, whether it's a change of management, whether it's a new product offering. Because if you're investing in a um, in an ETF, for instance, which is trying to capture the broad market, um, you know that's that's a that's a sound strategy. Um, however, there are specific opportunities which one can achieve by investing in, in a particular company. So we think that you know that prefer to take a, a um, kind of a uh, bifurcated approach. Um, so, for instance. Um, it, you know, if we believe that, uh, as I mentioned about the uh, about the U.S. Uh, consumer, you know, we think that uh, you know that the U.S. consumer is going to benefit from these lower oil prices. So the question is, is through an ETF, um, you know, how how do you how are you best able to do that? Well, you can go into an ETF which provides exposure to a consumer uh, discretionary, um, but then you have exposure both to the winners and the losers. If you don't have a strong conviction on a particular company, then that makes sense. However, if you have a strong conviction on a particular company, take Best Buy, for instance, which we thought was going to be, uh, you know, and, and continues to be a, a, a core holding and, and, um, and a company which is, which is tied to the U.S. consumer, we would not have been able to, uh, to obtain, you know, the returns offered by that particular company while just investing in an ETF. So again, there are and there's other reasons as well to invest in, in ETFs. Take Japan, for instance. Um, I would say that um, just given you know the visibility of the Japanese market, it's very difficult to identify one specific company um, which can you know in which we want to get our our exposure to Japan. Um, also, investing in one particular company makes it much more difficult to hedge currency risk. So we think for accessing the Japanese, the Japanese market um, or the Indonesian market or the Indian market makes much more sense to get an ETF because then you get the broad exposure and you can hedge against uh, your currency risk and it's far more economic. So mm -hmm. again, our approach is, is bifurcated. Um, you know, if they're if they're interesting stories, um, we think that it, it makes sense to to invest in a particular company. Um, but getting the broad market exposure uh, to hedge against currency risk, um, you know, also makes sense. Okay, so um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell my listeners how they could contact you, how they could get more information about. Sweetwood Capital, uh, maybe be, so being able to get your newsletter. Uh, so 
Daniel, please. You you have a free podium here. Sure. Well, um, we are a Tel Aviv-based um, asset management firm. Um, uh, you can uh, contact us through our website, which is www.sweetwood-capital.com. Um, and we're located um, in the uh, discount uh, bank tower in uh, Tel Aviv. Um, and I'd be happy to, uh, to hear from, from anyone and uh, uh, send along our, our newsletter and provide any other um, insight that, uh, that's desired. Okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, if you're willing, maybe we can catch up with you at the end of the year and see how things worked out. And, uh, you know, things that none of us would have predicted uh, will probably happen. And uh, we'll see how uh, what strategies were put in place to to deal with that. I, I really want to thank you and and wish you a uh, Chag Sameach sure. as well. Sure, Chag Sameach to you, and uh, and I look forward to uh, to the next opportunity to speak. Thank you very much. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.peacestein.com or look for Philip Stein Associates on Facebook. Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye.